I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How's everybody doing today? I want to welcome Till Swan to the Unimpressed podcast. And I know a lot of spiritual people on the West Coast, know a few on the East Coast, and I'm unimpressed that I have not met Till yet. So welcome, Till. Looking good and doing well over there in Salt Lake City. It's good to be here. Thank you. Your best situation is a live show. What makes the difference from a virtual session compared to a live session? Well, for somebody like me, let's call it a metaphysical filter is completely blown. It matters a lot where I'm put. So if you take me to one area of the globe or even one city versus another city, it's this whole other range of things that I'm perceiving. I never prepare for my events. What I do is I show up in the day of, based off of what I'm looking at, I know what I need to teach to. I'm missing a lot of the stimulus or input that makes it feel just so dialed in when I'm in person. It's also very different to be able to like, you know, tangibly touch people and be in their physical presence than it is to connect to them via some technological device. Your sensitivities when you are in a location and you have these feelings, does that lead you down a certain path you may or may not go if you weren't there? Yeah, it's like I'm doing much more of an overview of the culture itself. So, for example, if I'm in Japan, I'm going to be able to see exactly what that specific audience in front of me is dealing with. Now, if they're sharing the same time and space, then you'll notice that they're all a vibrational match to one another. And what that means is that there's a high likelihood that everybody who's in that audience is having a relationship issue, maybe an intimacy issue. So I know based off of actually watching that, it's, it's more of a visual thing for me than it even is a feeling. I talk about intimacy. Whereas if I'm at a distance, it's more like I'm going to take what I know about you no know, Japanese culture. I'm going to take an overview of the collective consciousness and teach two significant issues that I know are coming up at that time. When you say you look at a culture, if you see somebody, talk to somebody, how quickly did you determine a situation? Minutes. So when I would meet somebody, uh-huh. if I was very emotional when I met somebody out the gate, the, like the first 10 seconds, right, just left their house. I'm like, I don't know who these people are, what's going on, this and that. You know, my wife and my daughter would be like, Dad, why are you so, you know, aggravated, you know, mean or whatever about, the, you know, these people and, and so forth. And then like a year, two years, three years down the road, when I felt this way, exactly how I felt came true. I absorb a lot of emotion and I can feel, a, you know, a lot of emotion from people. So I don't know, maybe you can explain that to me. Most people in the spiritual field would call that an empath. When I'm sitting here and looking at your energy field, you're much more of a physical intuitive. What makes that different is that you would process whatever impulses or stimulus is in the room through your sensory perception, not as much through your emotional centers. That's actually located right in the center of your solar plexus. When you're a physical intuitive, you're going to register things that are happening in the external, including emotions other people might be feeling but through the physical. So you will start to react in terms of sensations. So let's say somebody else in the room has a stomach ache, you'll get a stomach ache. Let's say somebody else is like agitated or hiding something, you might get a cold sweat. So when I'm looking at you, your body is reacting to everything in the room. Where does that come from? Where does it come from? (laughs) Earlier, we were talking about, you know, whether people are, all people are born with these abilities, right? Mm -hmm. 
I tend to look at what's going on with me in a very different way than what's going on with, you know, most people. What happens with most people is they have the ability to sense much more than they are aware of or trained to sense. Mm -hmm. And we all have these areas in which we're more open. Some people, let's say you've got a genuine empath, they're much more open on an emotional level. And so it's like, you know, got one person with a much more keen sense of sight. It's no different for these perceptions that transcend the physical dimensions or transcend what we can see, taste, hear, and feel, right? But one person, yourself, for example, will be much more open, have better eyesight in terms of being able to sense on a physical level what is happening in your environment or what is happening with another person. It's not like these things come from somewhere. It's that it's innate and it's inborn. You can definitely train yourself to enhance the capacity to perceive. If I really wanted to tap into this, I can make it more than it is now. Yes, much more. And there's a spillover effect. So a lot of people, let's say that they're trying to develop clairvoyance. Clairvoyance is the ability to see everything. Mm -hmm. So where you walk into a room and you feel a person who's a clairvoyant will automatically see everything. They might immediately get images of the argument that took place in that house the night before. If you wanted to develop the capacity to be clairvoyant, most people would tell you to go and focus on developing clairvoyance, but actually that's not the best way to go about it. The best way to go about it is to capitalize on the aspect of your being that is the most open already, in your case as a physical intuitive. So you start to place more focus on that, start to do exercises around increasing your capacity to do that, and there's this spillover effect where eventually you maximize your potential to sense in that way. And so all of a sudden it may spill over to the next most open aspect of you, which might be the empath element. Then it spills over to the next most open aspects, which might be just knowing. We call that spiritual intuition. So I don't know. I don't see it. I don't necessarily feel it. I just know, right? So open, 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 open until eventually you're able to just, just perceive all kinds of things, you know? I do it in business sometimes with people that work with me or whatever. Sometimes I think people are thinking the same thing I'm thinking. And I will say something that they don't comprehend at all. What direction we're going? What does this have to do with whatever? It's almost like it's something that's going to happen maybe in a month, two months, right? And then my people who work with me, they're like, what the hell is he doing? Again, there he comes again. He said, there's the asshole, right? Because we don't even know what the hell he's talking about. But then when they sit and wait, that becomes a reality. I don't want to sound like a know-it-all. I'm pretty strong and correct with my judgments, usually about 90 to 95% of the time in those situations. And I don't know if I'm like, see something at a certain time in a home in, because sometimes maybe I just don't pay attention. That happens as well. You're a physical intuitive. All people have the capacity to become all of these things, spiritually intuitive, emotionally intuitive, and clairvoyant. But what I would call you is a physical intuitive. It's a way that somebody in my position would describe the way that your body is processing information that exceeds what our normal senses perceive. The reaction that you're getting from people is a lot because of what you're adding on top of it. If you would like to know how to tone down people's responses to what you're perceiving. When you're perceiving something and you're taking it in, you're still interpreting it, right? Yeah. What's being added on top of it is a, a judgmental element. That's what people are reacting to. You could express what you're perceiving in a more neutral way. It's that it's got this tonality of whether it's right or wrong or good or bad that makes people start to go eh, and they resist you. I'm rough around the edges sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? What do you think about bloodline, the foundation of where you come from as a person? Do you think there's any viability there? 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ancestors are everything. Um, genetics in and of itself is a 12-dimensional thing. So there are 12 dimensions to genetics. When you come into an ancestral family line, you are actually inheriting every memory that has ever belonged to any member of the family that has come before you, all family members. Your conscious awareness does not have the capacity to consciously draw on those memories. However, it's impacting you all day, every day. So ancestral trauma is an absolute reality when it comes to you know past lives or this type of discussion. It has no place in the conversation compared to ancestral lines. But this is something that before you come into your physical life, you are deliberately looking at. You're, you're looking at both the positives and negatives of that family line. It's almost like you're opting into a deck of cards and some of those cards are awesome and some of those cards are crap. Essentially, if you were in an awakened state, what you would be trying to do is to capitalize on and accentuate those things that would be considered positive attributes Whereas you're trying to change the patterns inherent in those, what we would call a more detrimental attribute. Now, are you Native American? No, none. European, nothing from anywhere else. Who's around you? Family? What's going on with that? I have an intentional community. I actually began this intentional community over 17 years ago. I decided in accordance with what I saw was healthy for physical humans, that it's not healthy for us to live outside of tribe. Of course, there are a lot of shadows that occur within tribe. So what we're going for is to to create a kind of a healthy tribal setting, like a very conscious and aware version of friends. If you imagine the people that you care about the most in life and imagine you're all sick of living your life separately and you want to come together to like live together and really, you know, live your life and to maybe even accomplish a mission together, which is what I've done. Now, let's say that you all move in together. So I have a bunch of people who are friends, who are family, in fact, who have been living with me, some of them for 17 years, some for six, some for four years. When you do these live shows, how many do you usually do a year? Well, it depends on whether I'm on world tour. I do a lot more. I do like three to four a week. When I'm at home, it's maybe once a month. So we're doing probably 16, 16 a year on average. What is your full motivation? Obviously, the spiritual part. What do you want to accomplish with your voice? I want to alleviate human suffering, regardless of what that suffering is. I'm an expert on human pain. 
And ultimately, this is like phase one right now is to be able to get that, you know, these skills and tools out to as many people as possible. Phase two is where I start to build replacements for those structures within society that actually cause suffering. For example, the justice system is what is my opus. I have a very different way of looking at, you know, what we would call criminal. So I would like to create an entire new system of justice for people who commit crimes. Do you know how I sum up life? Hmm. In two words, sensitivities and percentages. The reason why, if you were born in a desert, you're obviously going to be made of something, whatever that is. And you're born in that desert and you live in that desert. You're only going to know the desert, right? Because information drives society. Why can't people in society today recognize that to improve their life? Well, the description that you're talking about is deterministic in nature. And we're looking to change what is deterministic into free will or choice. Your observation that you just gave me is accurate to the degree that somebody has not actualized their free will. Once somebody actualizes their free will, they actually have the capacity to disidentify. That means that they're no longer constricted to their own personal, individual, perceptual reality. And that's one of the, the deepest spiritual practices, in fact, is to be able to disidentify so far from self that you can take in the objective perspective itself. And that changes every information, obviously, that is coming into your system, and that changes every decision you make. I always say you can find the answer to anything in the foundation, right? And then you have the top of whatever it is, whatever information you're talking about. But most people respond off top of mind, which is not who they are, or they're lazy and they operate in between. And there's a lot of dilution of the truth and falsehoods within that between situation, right? Instead of really digging deep, really understanding where this came from and where this information came from, going to the foundation, getting the answers, that's what society has developed, in my opinion. What do you think about that? Well, in my opinion, society does not go deep enough hardly ever. And that's why they can't really understand. There's not a firm enough understanding of what's occurring in order to meet any circumstance or any person in a meaningful way. So, yeah, I feel like that's a lot of the reason why society can't solve a lot of the problems that it's facing today is because it lacks the choice to go deep enough to develop enough understanding that would reveal exactly how to do things in an effective way. Do you think that's a self-inflicted thing that we have done to ourselves? Over time? Let me say yes and no. This is what I mean by that. We learn how to approach the world based on how the world approaches us. And unfortunately, that's down to mom and dad first and foremost in our childhoods. So if we had somebody in our childhoods that tried to deeply understand us, that developed enough intimacy, this would be the mental and emotional set point with which we address the rest of the world. So we have not been trained by our early caregivers, honestly, to look deep. In fact, we've been discouraged from it. Of course, that becomes this deterministic way that we then approach everything externally. It's just like kids, right? When kids are zero to five years old, their imaginations are out the roof, right? So if we go back to the 1800s when school started, right? And you see these guys standing over in this corner and they see all these kids with these great imaginations. They're like, shit, we need to create something that's going to slow their thought process down. So they created curriculum that is still probably the same curriculum that we had in the 1800s that's still in the schools today. I think curriculum today slows learning down in our school systems. When I say self-inflicted, right, in that situation, I think we created that because think about when kids go to school, when they're six, seven, eight years old, they, they lose their imagination. 
How do you get the masses to believe in that? Besides putting your message out there, you wait for them to suffer by what they've created enough. No, you said you want to help people with all pain. What is your biggest process that you know that you really want to win this situation or help this situation? I, I want to address all pain. My obsession is fragmentation. Fragmentation within not just the human psyche, but the universe at large. Now, if we apply fragmentation to a physical human, what you're looking at when you're looking at a criminal is a person whose consciousness has split, split into a vulnerable self and a protector self. Many, in fact, but I'm trying to simplify this concept. And it is that protector self that is trying to keep them safe in ways that not only ultimately wound them, but other people as well. What's not being done and what I really am wanting to do is to address this vulnerable aspect that is underneath whatever protector self is essentially committing murder or robbing or things like this. And this approach, taking this approach to people who we would label as criminals is not being done. And if there's no integration between the vulnerable self and meeting of the needs with the vulnerable self, as well as, you know, helping the aspect of them that has coped by becoming so violent or offensive to human society, there's no way to actually change the person into somebody who benefits society. And this, this is a huge lost resource. If you want to look at it in a, you know, in a less than loving way, you know, the way we're going to go about it when we're approaching politicians is that you're wasting a ton of money and every single person that's sitting behind a, a jail cell is a wasted resource. You talk about criminals. There's a David Fincher show about the FBI group who coined the phrase serial killer. The show is Mind Hunters, and they kind of use some tactics, what you're describing or what you do. Do you know anything about that being used in government? Not the processes that I'm describing, no, but it sounds interesting to me. Because if you were going to really talk to somebody, maybe that division in the FBI would be the people to start with for you. Have you went out? and try to talk to politicians and express your views and so forth? or No, because that's very much phase two of what I'm doing. I'm still in this phase one element where I'm trying to get a lot of information out to everyone, not just focus and limit all of my attention right now at this point in my career towards one demographic of people. It takes much more energy and focus than I have right now running an entire company and career. So it's got to be a one-two step for me. Right now you're on one and... When do you know you're getting new information? Is it just seeing more people, seeing as many people as possible, and then the green light goes off and says, hey, I'm ready? Or yeah, I don't want to be at a point where I'm having to rely on you know investors and things like that for this type of a, a move. That's very slippery territory, I need, and I need to. I'm not an idiot. I know that what I'm up against is a business that makes money off of people sitting behind jail bars. So that means I'm coming up against people making money. Not being an idiot myself, that means I need to come from as strong a place as possible. Not just a place of, you know, this utopian visionary who thinks there's a better way. No, I need to be like a heavy hitter by that point. Somebody with so much financial backing, so much fame behind me that I can cause a problem for people who are resisting this. Very, very clear the way you, I mean, you're very, very stern. You're very, very focused. I can see that. And you talked about frequencies and I read on here about frequency paintings. Yeah. What is that? What does that mean? This is one of them behind me, actually. So if, if you imagine energy like it's static, when something condenses into physical form, that static begins to take on shape. And so you see before something becomes physically manifested, it takes on this very geometric structure. So this is pre-manifested reality. 
So let's say that somebody is feeling the emotion joy or joy is about to manifest as a chemical sensation in the body. It will show up as a pattern in the energy field first. So what I'm doing is essentially copying these patterns down and they're serving as a homeopathic uh, influencer in the home. So like if I was able to paint joy, which I have done, then you put it in your living space, that vibration or that pre-manifested reality is actually much stronger than the physical. It's much larger, in fact. So I'm influencing a person's energy field with the frequency of joy. <laughs> this is expansion. That's expansion. And you did that painting behind you? Yeah. And how long did it take you to do that painting? Mm, four days. What do you use to do, do something like that? I use a combination of watercolor and acrylics. Watercolor, because there's a lot of movements. To be honest, you see, there's a lot of colors in the energy field. So I'm a little bit restricted. But when you're looking at how energy moves, watercolors tend to capture more of that movement than an acrylic does. I guess, when did you really find yourself? Have you And have you always been this clear? No, I've not always been this clear. I was a very raw child. I had a lot of these talents, but I had no idea of mastery of those talents. And in my childhood, I suffered to a degree that most people will never touch. And I hope they never touch. So uh, that suffering, regardless of how much you may know about the greater universe, it doesn't make anything better. You know, I, for example, I may have been able to see spirit guides like most people can't see, but it actually created greater trauma for me because when a lot of things were happening that were in alignment with my life path, they would sit there watching. So I actually have bystander trauma for them as well. So no, I had a very negative relationship with the universe at large, regardless of how much I knew about the universe. What was your first step? Because, you know, some people don't have a strong enough mind, you know, to get out of that. Well, the first step was realizing that if I don't commit to life, then I have no life. So it, there's no there's no sense in being a fence sitter. And that's what I was doing ultimately in my teen years when I was highly suicidal and tried to commit suicide multiple times. It was realizing that I'm not really fully committed to life because of the amount of pain that has been here. And I'm also not really fully committed to death. That's not going to work. And I realized Obviously, anything that manifests happens because you put your energy into it. So if I'm not putting all of my energy into life, there's nothing that's going to manifest. So I decided to play this game with myself, which was, you know, I could always kill myself tomorrow. Why don't I put 100% of my energy into really fully living the life I want to live today? And when I did that, there were results. So it turned to two days, turned to, you know, a week. I can always kill myself in a week. Turned to, I can always kill myself in a month. Eventually didn't want to. And what I did in the beginning is I turned myself completely away from spiritual practice. I wanted nothing to do with this because this is what got me in a lot of trouble in my childhood. And I went into professional sports. So my answer for you is a pretty funny answer. The first step that I took was to get out of this completely and to dedicate myself to the highest achievement that I could in sports as a professional skier and then a competitive speed skater. What was your level skier? Did you always know you're an athlete? I was always an athlete. I was always very good at athletics, yes, but... uh, I was a telemark racer and eventually made the United States telemark ski racing team. Do you tell that story about your first step, you know, at your live shows? Yeah. I mean, if people, if it's applicable, yes, (laughs) you'll notice that I tend to, whenever somebody comes to me with a question and I pull any necessary information for where they are specifically, it's not like I'm this person who's in the world and I've got this one message and I have to get this one message out. I am very much the type of person who wants to play the ball back and forth. So it's like I'm waiting for somebody to hit a ball to realize where they am and what necessary counter move that that implies that I need to make. I've recognized this thing with younger people having this anxiety, right? A lot of this anxiety is due to bad childhood. Somewhat could be uh, very informative to some of the younger generation today due to the things they're developing 
based on the environment, based on our foods and, and everything else. I think that's a big deal because a lot of people, they get lost in that. If you don't hear something like that or can relate to another person, uh, they don't know where to go. Exactly. And most people talk to them in a way that actually makes where they are worse. How about foods? What's your diet? Do you have a certain type of diet to keep your mind healthy? And I'm, I'm completely vegan. have been for 12 years. On top of that, I don't do sugar. I don't do processed foods. And I'm lectin-free as well. Lectin-free? So yeah. So I'm the hardest person to feed on earth. <laughs> that's what it's about to Right, so you so you're the one you go into the restaurant and you're like, all right, I'll have a salad, but no cheese. <laughs> yeah, a yeah, half a tomato. Eating out is not really a thing for me. It's mostly cooking, even when I'm on the road, because this is such a, you know, I don't want to say restricted because I don't feel like that. But what it is is that a lot of the things which trick your brain into thinking that something is tasty, and therefore will be cooked in a restaurant is not something which is actually conducive to human health. So I'm not really eating out a lot, which is pretty sad because I'm an absolute food freak. Mm -hmm. I love to cook. It's one of my favorite things to do. And I have such an appreciation of food that if you give me a good enough dish, I'll cry. Well, yeah, well, I, I take superfoods every day. Yeah. A buddy of mine, we try to eat organic pretty much all the time. I mean, I, I slip every now and then if I, you know, if I had a couple tequilas too many or whatever. The next day I might eat bad. That's the only time I eat bad, but usually we eat pretty good. And a buddy of mine is Dave Sandoval. He's uh, owns Purium Health Products. I don't know if you've ever heard of Purium. Not yet. He taught me a lot. I thought he was full of shit the first 10 years I knew him. He used to test product on us, mm -hmm. right, to develop this. And today it's a $75 million company. But when he started, nobody was doing what he's doing. I still think his food deal is still like way ahead of the curve because it's pretty much nutrient dense superfoods. And, you know, I've went through the history of food with him and, you know, how the calories was created in America as a falsehood and all these different things and how Chicago Board of Trade started chemicalizing foods after World War II. Yeah. Right. And now, you know, cancer, you can see the cancer rate take off after World War II because everybody stopped cooking at home. It was a new world. So I understand that very, very well. And I think a lot of people should, if they are a spiritual person, should really consider what they eat on a daily basis because it would definitely help. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's very much making your body a vessel for higher frequency consciousness to come through. What's your daily routine? Staying, doing what you do? Is there a certain structure you have daily or a certain day you do certain things? It's very important to me to flow with whatever's happening within the greater universe. And I will notice you know, when I wake up exactly what's happening. Um, I will make adjustments based off of that. I'm never going to be the type of person who, if, if everything is not conducive for work, is going to just sit down and plow through it. I don't believe in bulldozing. That being said, I'm one of the most disciplined people you'll ever meet. So let's assume that the universe is not an element here and doesn't throw me curveballs a lot. When I wake up in the morning, the very first thing that I do is an hour long to two hour long meditation, which is a, a presence meditation. What I mean by that is that it's not like I'm going out with my meditations. It's not journey work. I am with whatever sensations are occurring in my body. So it's a powerful self-presence and it grounds you. So that's the way that somebody like me who is as unfazed with the physical as possible can get fully phased. So we're back with me, Teal Swan, wherever I am, whatever year it is. Now I'm fully filling in my body with my awareness. Based off of that, a lot of personal truth rises to the surface. What I mean by that is personal truth in terms of what I'm needing that day or personal truth in terms of what I'm perceiving that the world needs that day. And then I'll usually take action on that. Um, after I do that meditation, I have a son. So usually he wakes up at that point and I'm making him food. It's very important for me that he has the experience of 
togetherness for family meals. So we do breakfast and dinner together every single day. So I'm making the entire family breakfast. So we sit down, we have that, and then he goes off to school and then I'm exercising. And, you know, I've got a lot of different things that I love to do for exercise. And after exercise, it's right into work. So it's whatever it is that I feel inspired to do. And if there is no immediate inspiration, I'm working on whatever my to-do list, you know, consists of, which is a 60 page to-do list. Yeah. So then we're doing that for as long as I feel an energy slump. It's really important for me to catch that wave. So when, when people wake up in the morning, you'll notice that there's this kind of wave of energy. That is, if you're in alignment, that wave of energy doesn't occur for people who are doing what they have to do, not what they're passionate about. But the wave of passion for people who are actually doing something that makes them passionate occurs and it peaks. And usually in the late afternoon, about eight, you know four o'clock, it will start to go down. Now, there are some people who operate in a flipped way. So they operate much better at nighttime. They're up till 3 a.m. It's, it's fine. But it's very important that somebody catches that wave and doesn't try to plow through it when that wave tapers off. So let's say that that wave tapers off around four o'clock. That's when my son usually comes home from school and I'm usually back in the kitchen again, doing a dinner for us to all sit down and really connecting with my community members. Yeah. So connecting is basically the rest of the night and then it's bedtime. You've been in Salt Lake City this whole time during the pandemic? No, actually. I was stuck in Costa Rica at my retreat center for almost four months in the very beginning of this whole thing. And then we ended up on a repatriation flight. I was not at a point because I'm, I'm straddling, you know, the United States and there. So I was not at a point where I could just stay there, especially because I have two dogs. So we got on a repatriation flight and flew back. And I haven't felt good about, you know, doing a lot of overseas travel because of getting stuck again. And I can't do that with a, with a community and a son. So we haven't been back since then, which is quite frustrating. <laughs> so, yeah, I've been in Park City since then. Tell me a little bit about your retreat and what you do there. My retreat center is called Philia. I tend to use that retreat center for our deep dives emotionally. One of the events that I do is called a curveball event. In that event, I decide whatever I want to decide to do with a group of people. I like to limit the size of that one. For my synchronization workshops when I'm on world tour and things like that, sometimes we have an audience of a thousand. So for these smaller events, I'm doing about 20 to 25 people is what I like to cap it at. And so I've got those people for a solid week. And during that solid week, I get to put them through whatever processes I feel like they need in order to line up with whatever their intention for being there is. It's really great because when they've got each other, they actually support each other's processes. And, and that enhances the learning because it's a guarantee you're going to end up in a group with somebody who's got the same issues as you. So it's just like doubling up and tripling up and quadrupling up your expansion experience and thrown in there is a couple of excursion days, which is real fun for them because they can go to places like r and where we'll take them to a, a hot spring underneath a volcano, you know. Yeah, so that's there. And then also down there at that place on top of the curveball event, I do a completion process training. Um, I created a, a few years back, actually, I created a process for helping people with post-traumatic stress disorder. And I'm training people, therapists, psychiatrists, and just people who, you know, are energy workers or really care about people who want to learn this. I will train them in this process and certify them to facilitate the completion process. So that training also takes place there in Costa Rica often. And how many people can you have there at one time? 33, but I can I could bump it up to 50, but if we do that, we just have to move people. Some people have to be staying off grounds, which mm-hmm. can be done. I just don't love it, you know, because my retreat center, to be honest with you, is like a separate world. It's kind of bizarre. It's in the mountains above San Jose. And so you drive up there and you drive into the property and it's like its own little bubble reality, which can be very special for retreats because it's like you're there and you're in this world and all this transformation is taking place in that world. And I tend to like that better than having people leave and come back during the week. 
Do you like talking about journeys? Do they do journeys? I don't do it on my property. The property itself that I bought was actually an ayahuasca retreat to begin with and an aboga retreat to begin with, but I don't do that myself and, you know, and all that. If anybody needs to see somebody for that, it's like a referral type of a thing. Well, you want me to tell you about my journey? Sure. <laughs> well, my friend, and I should introduce you to my friend at some point, Eric Neese. He was on the very first Real World, hosted The Grind on MTV. He was a big star and he just walked away from the industry. You know, he knows a lot of people in Hollywood and we've, you know, we're partners with Nick Cassavetes at one time, but that's here and there. But now lives this lifestyle, you know, vegan, you know, he does the the ceremonies with the native, the, the grandmothers. I think there's eight grandmothers that he does this with. He goes down to South America, down to the Amazon and all this kind of stuff. So he had been pressuring me for seven years to do this. And I was like, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. And you talk about, I didn't want to say anything, but you kind of hit the nail on the head. You talk about being cracked open. I went to this place in La Forest Canyon in Malibu, right? And I'm not going to say who they are because I think the one person's trying to run a political campaign, but they have people at their house, I don't know, pretty much all the time, 25 people at a time come in. The guy thinks he's a Chandler. He talks like he's this Native American. So I go there. We sit there, me, Eric, his girlfriend, and then it's this guy and then his, his wife, right? She's blonde-headed lady. As I'm laying on the couch, he's walking around. He says, release the hooks. Release the hooks. And I'm like laying there, release what hooks? And I, so I stand up, right? And I start walking around. He says, you would be the one that stands up and walks around. So he goes, uh, takes me outside. I go outside and lay down. So when the girl came to me and started trying to talk to me, she was the devil. And I cut her off completely. Didn't speak to her again. The Chandler guy, he was very, very clear. He was okay. It was a very, very interesting, interesting thing. But because I was able to see that instantly, it's, I, I basically became in my own world. And obviously the visuals were very, very extreme. And it was almost like a group of Native Americans were walking around me. And there was like this rattle, like, and then that's where they were speaking to me about bloodline, right? And they said, we've got you. And it, I was laying there and it was, it was like almost I went from a dark place to this very, very light place, right? And they told me, you don't know the power of God. And it was almost like the grass was like flir- flickering, like very, very intense, yeah. right? And these people in Malibu, La Flores Canyon, probably see thousands of people. And they said they had never had someone respond like that in these this ceremony. So I didn't think anything about it. I didn't say anything to my friend. But again, when my sensitivities were that height, what I saw, she became six months later and I finally told him the truth and she ended up taking money from my friend and and so forth. She she showed her true colors eventually, but that's when my life kind of changed though. That's when I was able to really take my business to a different level because I saw things differently. What's the perception of that story? Well, everything, this doesn't sound out of the ordinary for what I hear on, from people <laughs> on, on the grandmother vine. <laughs> yeah. That particular medicine as a consciousness answers to whatever is needed at that time for personal expansion. So everybody gets a completely different experience and every journey you do is completely different. Did you see any fractals? Did I see any what? Did you see any fractals? Fractals, I, I saw these little circles spinning and there's thousands of them on the, on the walls of Malibu. 
It's, yeah. it's almost similar like your painting behind you. Exactly. So that's pre-manifested reality. So the closest you can get to knowing how it's been since I was born is to take, you know, a, a DMT medicine because mm-hmm. it's blowing your filters. That's how I live all day. So I'm seeing, I've never seen anything other than that. That's how I see normally. Really? Yeah. You're completely dialed in. I'm the opposite of dialed in, in fact. So you see the little spurls and the movements and all that stuff all the time. All the time. There's nothing but that. I don't see negative space. So what I mean by that is that most people have described to me that air is like clear to them. I I don't think I've ever seen what most people see when they say they see air because everything is just always moving. There's nothing that's stationary. Like even a table is buzzing. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeing all of these geometric patterning, like what you would see when you, you take ayahuasca, but all the time. I mean, literally all the time. I don't know anything other than that. Does that keep you homed in or does you, does it become too normal sometimes? I don't know any different. So you can't make a judgment. No. When you home your mind into the thought process of you're trying to be inspirational to whoever you're talking to, uh-huh. does that vision change at all? No. So when you say you're cracked open, you're just completely wide open just yeah. all the time, every day. Yes. Yeah, so here's how, here's the best way to describe this. When most people come into the physical reality, it's like they're opting to become an avatar in a video game. And when I say become the avatar in a video game, I mean, that's you. And you forget the fact that you are also sitting on the couch. That's actually considered healthy. Like this is something that bothers me. I think is a lot of people like to look at people like in my specific position. I'm not talking about somebody who's been able to develop these types of gifts. I'm talking somebody who you say it's a gift, but really it's you know, for whatever reason, I was never able to fully plug in, right? What's happening with me is I could not just be the avatar. I never was able to do that. Mm-hmm. So I am, I'm silent. I'm all the time aware of, you know, the person who's sitting on the video game, what's happening on the screen, what's happening in the game as well. It's like, they're all playing out at one time for me. And, and so I'm saying this because it's considered quite healthy, in fact, for a person to plug into their avatar and to really fully be here. And then, you know, when you say that somebody's developed the gift, what that means is that they begin to realize as the avatar in the game, wait a minute, I think there's something outside this. When you tell people who you are and what you are and tell them about your abilities, do you have confidence when you tell people or is there a little non-confidence? of trying to spread that message. Because I think sometimes when I talk to people and tell them some of the things just at my level that I've experienced. So do you have confidence doing that? No, not because what it is is that I don't have any doubt in what's occurring. I can't do that any more than, than you would have doubt that the wall behind you is white. But if you knew that I would have a huge problem with that, of course you would have a hesitation. It would be intelligent to have a hesitation. Otherwise, you are not attuned to the environment that you're in. And that's what's hard for me. If I'm talking to a giant group of people and one person in that group is Christian and they have a different mindset or filter around what's going on with me than somebody who's new age, I would communicate to the two differently. But if I'm speaking to a group, I can't. And that creates a lot of anxiety. I always listen to this thing Bruce Lee said, you know, if you create a style, right, you crystallize growth. You know, they create this style or this topic or this genre, right? It's perpetuated over time and then it becomes the gospel, right? So no matter how you're categorized, I was listening to what you said about how you approach a certain person differently because you can still get the same message across whether they're Christian or, or whatever they call themselves. 
you can still get the same message across to them if you approach it the right way. I mean, that's the world we live in, you know, because the mind is not being pushed as far as it should be. Till has done six published books in her so far in her career. Tell us a little bit about the six books, and you don't have to go in in depth, but tell me a little snippet of each. Okay, the first one that I ever wrote, The Sculpture in the Sky, is a, a huge objective view. So I'm taking people to the highest level of looking at the universe, the reason for life, why joy has so much to do with the meaning of life and how to follow that joy. The second one, that's The Sculpture in the Sky. The second book was Shadows Before Dawn. Originally, I was very frustrated in my life because I did not have any self-love. I mean, none to the degree that I was like a cutter. So, you know, when we're talking no self-love, I mean none, right? Big time self-hate. And it was really frustrating to me that nobody could tell me how to love myself, just that I should. I wrote this book to be the how. Okay, you don't love yourself right now. How do you go about actually doing it? What things are you practically changing? That was pretty interesting because I, I had to study the difference between people who don't love themselves and people who do to kind of map out the differences between them and then figure out how to close that gap. My publisher would not publish that book without including my personal story in it. And so the first part of that book is the story of my childhood, how I ended up where I am today. And the third book was Completion Process, which is actually the process that I created, but I'm teaching it to the masses. So whereas I train people to be able to facilitate this process, this is how to do the process yourself if you're in a room by yourself. Fourth book was Connection Process, which is a super esoteric process for developing intimacy. It's where you're actually doing journey work, but into another person's internal world. The book after that was Anatomy of Loneliness. Pretty self-explanatory. I wanted to explain to people exactly what the pillars of loneliness are, what creates loneliness, and how to Conversely, once you understand that, how to create the opposite of that, which is genuine connection. The book after that was Hunger of the Pine, which was my first novel, which is a novel about a homeless youth. And I'm using her actually as the lens through which to introduce all these different demographics of, of homeless people in the United States. So as to increase awareness around homelessness itself, it's also a whopping good love story. So <laughs> I was trying to to gain you know, awareness through first person, putting people in the first person on the street in America at the same time as tell a good story and exercise my writing skills. So those are the six books. Have you ever had your IQ tested? Yes. What's your IQ? 175. I could tell. That's one, that's one of my abilities too, is uh, I'm in the talent business and I'm able to find good talent for some reason. A clip of a video or uh, intellect, but I can definitely tell that your IQ is very, very high. I mean, I think I, Einstein was 160. You know, put, uh, sell that. Sell that. People need to sell intelligence and, you know, look more positive because, you know, it's society is a negative society, right? If we sold something like intelligence and looked at the upside instead of selling the downside every day, maybe there's a different path there as well. It'd be a good idea. It doesn't hook into the fear centers as much, which is our addictive centers as well. Yeah, exactly. I want to thank the expert in human suffering, Till Swan, for being on the Unimpressed podcast. My name is John Edmonds Cosma. I'm the CEO of Bang Productions. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.